Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello and welcome. It's the Magic Book Club podcast. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look into why our favourite authors put pen to paper. On this week's episode, I'm going to be catching up with actual writing legend Ian Rankin about his brand new book, A Song for the Dark Times. It's already getting incredible reviews and I loved it. I'm also going to be chatting to the wonderful Jodie Pickled. We've got proper writing royalty on the show today about her brand new novel, The Book of Two Ways. And as always, I'm going to be checking in with some of your favourite authors to find out just what inspires them to write the books that we love so much. Now, first up, we are so lucky to be chatting to a man who not only has got 13 letters after his name, 13, O-B-E-D-L-F-R-S-E-F-R-S-L, and you will get bonus points if you can tell me what those all stand for. Put them in the review, which you're going to write on your podcast platform of this wonderful show, right? Put them in there. Uh, He's also written a whopping 25 novels as well, 25 novels, and I tell you what, they get better and better and better. The new one is wonderful i'd loved reading it so without further ado let's welcome the marvelous ian rankin well it's it's lovely to be here and um uh it's a glorious day uh, i mean listen you know full well it's not because we've just been talking off air about the rain that's currently pouring in fact this sort of rainy autumnal weather that we're in at the moment perfect perfect weather to settle down yeah it is perfect weather but i'm talking to you from edinburgh where the sun is cracking the flagstones uh, it's ridiculous i've had to close the the curtains in my room because it's too bright are you kidding i am not kidding it's extraordinary uh that's completely unfair that's not how it should be at all because i think of the genuinely having done about a billion edinburgh festivals i think of this weather yes. as classic edinburgh weather and it makes me want to go and hide in a basement somewhere and watch someone's fringe show this i is- know it's it's august weather uh normally edinburgh in august you 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 go in to watch a fringe show just to get out of the rain and everybody's gently steaming yes, as it's in an overcrowded um cellar somewhere yeah, clutching steam- a plastic glass of fizzy beer that's it steaming in every sense of the word it was so strange this year edinburgh was just so weird in august i can imagine i can only imagine i mean surely that's a great place to set your next rebus isn't it a a spookily quiet august edinburgh oh i I thought about it i thought about you know a crime novel in lockdown i mean it's a very intriguing proposition um but every other person i know has had the same idea and i don't think we want to flood the market with too many lockdown novels and you know is there an audience for it i don't know i think a lot of us when if and when we come out the other side of this uh, are going to want escapism we're not going to want to go back and read about the thing that just happened no i think you're absolutely right the last thing i'd want to do is settle down to a lovely you know 15 hour read of a book about 2020 the sooner we can get over 2020 the better um how has it been for you then as a writer as as a resident of edinburgh has it been a positive experience or pretty awful well, I, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the new book. I mean, the new book was conceived sort of September, October time, but didn't get down to hard writing on it until January, February, mm. and um, headed up north because the book is set up in the north of Scotland. And I drove up there to do the research after the first draft and then came back to start the second draft, at which point lockdown happened. Yeah. And it was perfect for me because I was going to be locked down anyway. I was, I was in my um, office in Edinburgh, I'd done all the research I needed to do. Uh, Every public event I had was cancelled. So I had nothing to do except focus on the book. Now, I know some writers struggled, uh, especially early on, to focus on the writing. I had no problem at all. I found reading difficult in the early days of the lockdown. I found it hard to focus on reading. 
But the writing was a lovely escape from everything that was happening outside. And I had made the decision early on that the book would be set in the summer of 2019. Thank God. I decided <laughs> 2019 and not the summer of 2020. That would have been a very different experience. A lot of rewrites would have gone on. Um, and then in between times when I wasn't writing and you were allowed your one hour of regimented exercise per day, I would wander out into the completely deserted city centre streets. And I would walk up to the castle, walk up to the kind of the, the, the castle esplanade and there would be literally nobody there i would look over look over the wall towards princess street and princess street gardens no traffic no noise you could hear birdsong you could occasionally see foxes wandering about uh it was the most it, you know it was a lot of people have said this it was a bit like 28 days later mm-hmm. at the start of that film where the, the guy comes out of the hospital in central london and wanders around and there's nobody there yeah, uh, and it was a weird experience. Uh, it was a, a, a you know for the for the for the senses. It was an extraordinary experience, and I did get a lot of writing done, including this book. So, did it loosen you up creatively? Then, do you, and do you think that this this new book, A Song for the Dark Times, here's here's a question, and this is a, a bit of an unfair question. Do you think it might be better than before? Do you think do you think the fact that you've had this ability to concentrate harder has made your writing better, maybe? I, I don't know. I mean, I know I enjoyed the experience of writing it, and the early reviews have been phenomenally good. Um, and of course, everybody goes, oh, how how prescient were you to call it a song for the dark times? Well, when I came up with the title of the book in September last year, there was no COVID and no sense that COVID was coming. I thought those were dark times. I thought the world we were living through in September 2019 was a dark time in, 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 in cultural history and political history. Um, you know, I was looking at things like Trump in the White House. I was looking at Brexit. I was looking at the rise of the far right in various um, cultures and countries around the world. Wildfires everywhere from California to Australia. You name it. It seemed to me like the world was going through a pretty dark time. Um, but it was, it, it, you know, so it was bizarre to me that then along comes COVID and suddenly everybody goes, oh, yes, a song for the dark times. My goodness. You knew what was coming, didn't you? <laughs> this guy's a soothsayer it's amazing um yeah i mean it's it, it's bizarre how often this stuff happens though you know there was very one of the very early rebus novels um involved uh, a kind of i don't know a, a sort of gay mafia in edinburgh of sort of senior lawyers and judges who are consorting with rent boys and then trying to cover it up and a couple of years after the book was published, uh, the police started to investigate just such an allegation. And of course, people said to me in Edinburgh, oh, how did you know? You must have had inside information. And I would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, <laughs> I've got, I've got my ear to the ground. I know what's coming. It was completely invented um, and then came true. And then to, to bring us up to date, this book opens with Rebus because he has a thing called COPD, which used to be emphysema. Um, he can't manage stairs anymore. And since book one, published in 1987, he has lived two stories up, two flights up in an Edinburgh tenement. So this book opens with him moving to a ground floor flat. Well, the flat that he's been living in since 1987 then came up for sale and was advertised as Rebus's flat coming up for sale in the real world. Um, so just after I had moved him in the books, the owner of the flat decided they were going to sell up as well. That's so strange. This is so weird how reality and your books are crossing over. I mean, if you are some sort of soothsayer, if you are predicting the future, could I request that you write your next book about a crazed Oompa Loompa losing a presidential election? Could you do that for me? <laughs> this is a problem for, for fiction writers. You couldn't make someone like Trump up. It's, uh, yeah. it's been a problem for reality for quite a while, is that reality is so outlandish at the moment that writers are struggling. We, sh- we shrug and shake our heads and go... You couldn't invent a scenario like Brexit, especially coinciding with COVID. 
You couldn't invent someone like Trump you, and make him believable? No. You could invent him, but could you make him believable? No. So the real world is becoming increasingly less believable, less credible. But in some ways, I think that's driving people to fiction. People are coming to fiction for a realistic worldview. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because what it boils down to, especially in this book, is core things that are forever unchanging. People's uh, personal selfish greed, family, love, history, all these core things that we can sort of dig into when the real world around us is getting terrifying. We can dial back to those basic core things and enjoy fiction around those, I guess. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, the books, How do, you know, I often get asked, how do you get the ideas for your books? And I've just got a big folder called Ian's Big Folder of Ideas. And in that, every year, I will be adding scraps of paper with one-liners, with character names. Um, I might be sitting in a bar or a cafe and I'll notice a person who's a little bit eccentric or a little bit different, and I'll do a quick description of them because they might be useful to me. Basically, I'm going around the world stealing people's souls um, for the benefit of my books. But in that, this time around, um, when it came time to start a new book, I found some cuttings, newspaper reviews and interviews um, about internment camps, uh, internment camps in the UK during World War Two. And the cuttings were from different years. It was a couple of books, I think, had been released in different in different years, and there would be interviews with the authors. And I thought, oh, obviously there's something about internment camps that resonated with me. Um, and when I started to read about them, I thought, you know, it seemed to me that the dark time that I thought we, the world was going through in 2019 that the possibility of internment camps was back in the air again in some countries. I mean, these were set up because, you know, at the start of World War II, suddenly we had enemies. Um, the Germans were our enemies, the Italians were our enemies, uh, the Japanese, possibly the Chinese were our enemies. And so we started locking people up. And, um, uh, you know, your local chip shop owner, your cafe owner, the Italians, um, the, 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 the you know, the, your neighbours, uh, were suddenly put into internment camps. They'd done nothing wrong. It was just that their surname or their background was slightly different from everybody else's. And this paranoia was afoot. And Churchill backed it up. Uh, Winston Churchill said, "Colour the lot. All of these, all of these uh, enemy aliens, these foreigners, get them put in internment camps. And the internment camps, some of them were okay, some of them were badly run. Some of the prisoners were in there for an awful long time. Some were released very quickly. And the Isle of Man became one huge floating internment camp. There were lots of them in the north of Scotland, and some of them are still around. You can go and visit them, and the kind of rusting um, uh, shelves of these buildings that people were kept in are still there to visit. And yeah. it was that resonance with things that I thought I could see happening in the present day and something that happened in the past. And I love it when the past and the present collide or clash or, or come together in some way. Yes. Um, you think that the past has gone and those ideas are gone and then you hear uh, recently the Home Secretary talking about and I, I think an idea was floated to, to a, was it a Greek island or a volcanic island? Ascension island. Ideas. Uh, Ascension, I think Priti Patel, Priti Patel was going to send our, our migrants to um, Ascension Island. Uh, those ideas that belong in the history classroom and yet they're coming back to life again and that must be, whilst terrifying a lot of people, for you as a writer that's catnip isn't it? It, yeah, I mean, what you don't want to do is write a polemic. I'm not here to, to, to no. tub thump. I'm not a politician per se. I don't want to get up and change your mind by shouting at you. Um, but if I can use um, history in a more nuanced way, then yes, I can maybe make some points about the present while referring to something that happened in the past and make the reader think a little bit more deeply about the situation that we're in. 
So this this book isn't it's not a political textbook. It's not a political argument as such. It is a plot. It's a story. But the story happens to involve, um, you know, a young man who's been investigating internment camps or one internment camp in particular, the history of it. And that may have got him into trouble or he's gone, he's gone missing for some reason. and We don't know why. Now, when I started the book, I had when I started writing the book, I had no idea why this person had gone missing. Um, when I start my books, people often think crime fiction, you must know everything. It must be retrofitted. Mm. So you start at the end uh, and then you work your way backwards, putting in red herrings as you go. And it, for me, it doesn't work that way. For me, it starts with the author knowing as little as the detective or the main character in the book and feeling my way towards what the book is about and feeling my way towards what the conclusion is and who did what, why they did it by getting to know the characters in the book. And the book often has a much better sense of where it wants to go than I do. This all sounds a bit woo-woo, a bit kind of no, mystical, it but I it, love it works it. Just, for me. I love the idea that you're writing this book and you're almost, you, you know, you're going through these characters and, and you, are you almost thinking to yourself, did you do it? Is it you? And you have a little think about that person. And, and is there a moment then when all, all the pieces fit together and you go, yeah, it's you, I know it was you. And it, when does that moment come? There's normally a light bulb moment about two thirds of the way through the book where I think, oh, it's you, and this is the reason why you did it. Um, the thing is, if you write now who done it, I think it's quite nice at the at the start of the project if you don't know who done it, because if you don't know, there's a good chance the reader won't work it out too soon either. Absolutely. Um, so, but there have been books. I mean, there's one in particular a long time ago. I had a novel called The Hanging Garden, and I got to the end of The Hanging Garden, and I still didn't know who done it. Um, <laughs> And so the first draft just had these big sort of empty spaces and bits where I go, I'll fix this later. And, and I was reading, I then read through what I had. Yeah. And in reading through the two or 300 pages, I started to see who, who it must have been, who the killer must have been. Um, and so that was all fixed in the second draft. The thing yeah. to do is not, not panic. I think a lot of people would panic if they started writing a whodunit without knowing everything that's going to happen. And some writers do need to know that. I interviewed the crime writer, uh, James Elroy once, and he said that he writes a two to three hundred page synopsis, so that he knows everything that is going to happen in this book before he starts to write. But that the book. must make writing the book feel like writing an essay. Yeah, I would have thought. I would. I would think that makes it a bit of a chore. Um, yeah. It's much more fun if you don't know where the book is going. As long as you don't panic. As long as and and I don't panic now because it's happened to me so often yeah. that I started the book without knowing where it's going and ended up knowing where it's going. And I now trust that that will be that will still happen. And it does um, work, and it makes, and you can tell in the same way that you watch certain actors on screen, they pop because you know they're having fun doing what they're doing. And it's the yeah. same with you, Ian. I read your writing, and I know how much you're enjoying it. But and it, it's that seat of the pants thing, and it actually that ties in quite neatly because someone else who's been on this podcast, the inimitable one and only Lee Child, who you mentioned several times, there's a sort of product placement going on during the book. Tell us a bit about that. Well, let me tell you why that is. Uh, every book, and I've done this for quite a long time now, in every book, several times I will auction off for charity the right to be a character in the book. And uh, two years ago, roughly this time of year, actually, two years ago, I was at a book festival in the United States, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Lee was there. Um, Karen Slaughter was there, a bunch of other crime writers. There was a charity auction. I wasn't at that charity auction, but they were. And they bid against each other to be a character in my next book. And they both bid the same amount. And so I was asked if I would put them both in. Now, often if you give me your name to be a character in my book, I will make you a cop or you know someone else. 
a right. thug, a villain, whatever you want to be. I couldn't have Detective Constable Lee Child and Detective Sergeant you know, Karen Slaughter. Everybody would no. go, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So they had yeah. to play themselves, basically. Yeah. Um, and so what I've got is an event in Edinburgh, a book event at the biggest venue in the city. It holds 3,000 people. They're doing an event together. They sold it out. And Siobhan Clark, one of my detectives, is taken along to see them and get some signed books. Um, there were, I've got to, I've got, I'm going to own up now. Um, there were more mentions. That, uh, currently, there's about three mentions of them. There were more. Um, and my agent, when he read it, went, "Why have you? Why? Why do you keep? Why do you keep mentioning Lee Child and Karen Slaughter all the way through this book?" So we took some of the mentions out because it was getting a bit preposterous. Um, I so I just hope they think they've got their money's worth. They definitely have. They definitely have. And I did, you know, have a sort of. It, it was. It reminded me of product placement. I finished. I, you know, I finished a song for the Dark Times about an hour before we started this interview, and I, I finished the book and thought, I really need to read a Lee Child now. I just like. Yeah. I've been told. I've been told by you. Um, here's a question for you. Uh, the TV adaptations of Rebus are they done now? Are they ever going to come back? What's the What's the situation with those? Because I and I don't know how you feel about this as a writer. This is a double whammy question. But I feel like I've just, and I because I love Ken Stott and I think he is Rebus in my head. And I do feel like I've just been on a holiday to to North Scotland with Ken Stott. Is is that weird for you, or are you okay with that? Um, yeah, you know what I mean. The 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 uh, TV's have been a long and tortuous process. Um, the first ever actor who who signed up to play Rebus on screen was actually Dirty Den from EastEnders, Leslie Grantham. Oh, no. Really? Um, he was he was going to he was going to buy the rights to the book, the first Rebus novel. And he was going to transfer the action to London. And he was going to play a London cop called Rebus. And I was delighted because I was yeah. going to make a lot of money from that. And I was a young writer. I had no idea I was going to keep writing about this guy, Rebus. Didn't matter to me. That yeah. fell by the wayside. And then um, Robbie Coltrane was approached to play Rebus, but he went and did Cracker instead. Then it fell into abeyance for a while. It was in what's called development hell. Eventually, John Hanna, the actor, rescued it. His production company made it, and he signed on the, the bottom line to play Rebus, which was the only reason it got made. Yeah. And then he went off to Hollywood to do some stuff and um, they managed to persuade Ken Stock to play Rebus. Now, during all this process, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't write any of the scripts. I never read a script and I've never watched an episode. Really? Because I didn't want actors' interpretations of my character to get in the way of my character. Yes, right. So that when I sit down, it's my Rebus I'm seeing, not Ken Stott's Rebus. You don't want a George R. R. Martin scenario, because he loves watching his Game of Thrones on TV. And that, well, that you know, before, before Rebus was televised the first time, I got in touch with a few crime writers whose work had been televised, and they pretty uniformly said to me, it will change the way you write about the character. Yeah. And the person who, who was most passionate about that was Colin Dexter, Inspector Morse. Brilliant. He admitted to changing the character of Morse in the books to be more like John Thaw, the actor. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to change my character to be more like an actor. He was my character. So I decided I wouldn't get involved in the TV versions. Now, you asked about will he come back again. Yes, there's a, there's a, a two-hour pilot for a relaunch that is going, doing the rounds at the moment. We're just waiting for someone to green light it. It's written by a fantastic screenwriter and playwright uh, called Gregory Burke. Um, he has he has retooled Rebus so that Rebus is in the present day, but in his forties or maybe his fifties. Okay. Um, so will we see Ken stop back again? I don't know. There's a little postscript to that. During lockdown, I was approached by the National Theatre of Scotland, and they said, "Would you like to do a ten-minute play about lockdown?" And this was manna from heaven because I was getting asked by fans on social media, what would Rebus be doing during lockdown? He's got a thing called COPD, he's got emphysema. 
so he would be in isolation. He would yeah. he would have to be uh, isolate himself. Um, and and this gave me the opportunity to do uh, a one act play, a ten minute monologue from Rebus during lockdown. And having written it, which was great fun to do, the National Theatre of Scotland then said we've approached um, Brian Cox, the actor, not the astrophysicist, and you know who's at the moment enjoying great success with Succession on TV, um, and he's agreed to do it. Now he's currently in lockdown in a cabin in Upper State, New York, but bless him, he dressed the set so it looked as much like an Edinburgh kitchen as possible. And he did this monologue. And so you can go onto YouTube and you can find Rebus Lockdown Blues or look for the National Theatre of Scotland and you'll find Brian Cox's interpretation of what my character Rebus, pretty much the age Rebus is now, late 60s, um, how he's coping with lockdown. And that was a, that was an absolute honour and a treat for me. Oh my word, that's amazing. Well, now we can literally do that right Absolutely. Now. I just want to end the interview now because I want to go and do that. Yeah, you want to go off and watch it, yeah. I've watched it several times and it's, it, yeah. puts a, it puts a little smile on my face every time. Yeah, Brian Cox doing an... Because uh, uh, obviously, I mean, I've watched Brian Cox. I, uh, You're going to curse at me now. I didn't know he was Scottish. And then I... So I watched Succession. Uh, and then I've discovered you know his actual background i was like all oh, right yeah well, he, he does. he's a very good character actor he can do anything so i mean i've seen him in american movies hollywood movies the Bourne movies where he you know he's playing an american and he does it really well yeah, um does. but no he's dundee dundee born and bred could he be rafferty does that work is he too old? uh cafferty no i i i, I, I mean he could be I, 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 you know i mean years and years and years ago when i was first asked who i envisaged playing rebus on tv brian cox was my first choice i thought yeah. physically in terms of you know life up and dealt with a few blows, I thought he was just he would just be perfect for it. He would also be very good uh, as Cafferty, I think. Um, a lot of fans have mentioned I'm going to blank his name now. There's an actor from Game of Thrones, a Scottish actor from Game of Thrones, uh, James Cosmo. Mm -hmm. People have said would be very good as as Cafferty. Um, you know, there's always different rebuses out there. And having said to you that I didn't watch TV because I didn't want actors to get in my head, I did go and see the the, the stage dramatization. We did a stage version of Rebus a couple of years ago. Um, uh, and you know, a couple of different actors played them, depending on 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 which runner you you saw of that. Uh, and it never did quite make it to London, although it did make it to the provinces. Um, and and it was great fun. Uh, but the actor playing Cafferty in that a guy called John Stahl, who also I think has been in Game of Thrones, he just he he stole every scene he was in. And that's we were to come back to something you were saying earlier. Someone like Cafferty is a character who has so much charisma and is so dangerous and so much fun to write that I always find a way to bring him into the books. And I don't want to get out of the way, but the ending of the song for the Dark Times, excellent. Uh, yes, I yes. Mean, there's, a, there's a dot, 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 as we say in the trade. Uh, really is. And yeah. I've got, I've got a bit of a random question about Cafferty, actually. Now, this mm. is off. I've done some, some heavy Wikipediaing, and Cafferty lives in a penthouse in Quartermile. And do, is that not? Do you not live in the Quartermile bit as well? <laughs> are you? Are you actually secretly Cafferty? <clears throat> I think bizarrely, I think a, a psychoanalyst could have great fun with this because Rebus lives in the street that I lived in when I was an impoverished student. Uh -huh. uh, but in recent years, I've basically lived in the same street as Cafferty. So I was living in a nice big Victorian detached house in an area of Edinburgh um, called Merkison. And that's where I moved Cafferty to later on, later on in the series. And then Cafferty moves from his big Victorian mansion, um, which was basically my house, uh, into a, a, a triplex uh, penthouse in a new development in the centre of Edinburgh. 
And below me, a year or so later, I moved there as well. Now, it wasn't my idea. It was my wife's idea. And we don't live in a, a shiny triplex penthouse apartment. But we do. I can look out of my window, basically, and look up at Rebus's apartment. Nice. And he, in turn, can, if he has a telescope, can train it across this area of parkland called the Meadows yeah. to Mer Marchmont, where Rebus lives. And he can basically see Rebus walking his dog uh, on the meadows from, from his shiny glass and steel uh, apartment. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think, you know, a psychoanalyst could probably have a bit of fun with the fact that I've gone from living where my hero lives yes. to living where my villain lives. Have, yeah, have I become the villain of the piece? This is the thing. They say that you become more right-wing maybe as you get older. Maybe you're becoming a baddie as you get older in the same way. God, do you think? I hope I'm not becoming right-wing. Oh, the no. thing about Caffert is, in one, of the, in one of the previous books, there's a scene, one of my favourite scenes I've written in recent history, where... I don't. I don't mention politics much in the books. I don't. I haven't mentioned um, the independence referendum or, or Brexit much in the books. But there is one conversation that Cafferty has with a fellow gangster in Ireland, and the pair of them are basically rubbing their hands during this telephone conversation because they see themselves as disaster capitalists, yes. and they think there's money to be made out of this chaos. There's money to if you put a barrier across the middle of Ireland, then of course suddenly we, we you start to see ways of making money. Um, mm. uh, 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 you know, bootleg and everything else that goes with it suddenly becomes a thing you can do to make money. And so they're looking, they're keenly looking at ways that they can capitalize um, or monetize the, the chaos that's about to descend on us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, hands at both ends of the scale, right at the top, you know, the high end capitalists and, and the low end as well. Let's not dwell on that. Let's not get too political. Um, uh, Ian Rankin, I could talk to you for ages, but there is sadly a time limit on this interview. Um, a song for the Dark Times. It is amazing. It is uh, far from being. I mean, that sounds like a sort of uh, uh, song for the dark times. Sounds like uh, I don't know, somehow depressing and bleak, but it's not. It's uh, it is a song. It is a melody, and it is uh, it's got a wonderful heart, and it's a fantastic. Most importantly, wonderful story, and I absolutely loved it. So thrilled that Rebus is still going strong. Are you currently writing the next one? Is that underway? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not currently writing the next one. I've got no ideas. I've got nothing. I might have to go dip back into my big box of tricks again and look and see what ideas I've got lurking in the folder i'm out of contract at the moment so i can my wife would rather i've just turned 60 she would rather we took it easy if COVID hadn't come along we would be doing a lot of international traveling and just enjoying ourselves um but since you know since we can't go international traveling and all the public events are cancelled i've not got much else to do but sitting right writing's how i've always made sense of the world it's always been a, a, a hobby for me even when i wasn't paid to do it it was a way of making sense of the world communicating with the world so yeah, hopefully there's another idea just around the corner. Meantime, uh, I'm about to go and put the uh, playlist from the book uh, because the book is all revolves around a, a, a CD that Siobhan Clark has made for Rebus. It's full of different songs that you might enjoy while he's driving up and down Scotland. And I'm just about to go and put the playlist on Spotify. Okay. So once you've read the book, you can go and listen to the Spotify playlist and then you can watch the play with yes. uh, Brian Cox playing Rebus. There you go. All you need is a t-shirt and you've got the whole set. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> I love it. Um, Ian Rankin, A Song for the Dark Times is out now. Congratulations on your new book. It is brilliant. What a pleasure to talk to you. I'm thrilled you can't go anywhere because it means there'll be more. That's the most important thing. Thank you very much. Now, all the way from the United States, I am so excited to be chatting to a huge author. Uh, she's done such massive novels, things like My Sister's Keeper, 19 Minutes, Spark of Light. It's the brilliant Jodie Pickled. Jodie, hello. Welcome to the show. Why, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little tired. It's early here, but... <laughs> right, right. Good. Excellent. Oh, I like a tired brain. We can really get you free associating in that case. Perfect. 
<laughs> Let's get some proper nonsense out of that brain of yours. Um, so welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast. Now, uh, when we think of Jodie Pickolt, um, we, we think about your fantastic novels, but especially, I guess, My Sister's Keeper. What is it like being the author of one of the biggest and most emotionally charged novels and films of the last sort of 20 years, I guess? Um, well, it's always very lovely to, uh, to have people who recognize your work. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people... A lot of people did come to my writing through My Sister's Keeper, but there have been several books along my career that have sort of been what I call like the the gateway books. Um, yes. My Sister's Keeper is one of them. Uh, so is 19 Minutes. So is Small Great Things. In fact, Small Great Things has outsold My Sister's Keeper at this point, which is great. Um, so I'm just really grateful that anyone picks up any of my books to read. And and if they then continue to read me forward and backward in terms of my backlist, I'm I'm thrilled. Well, I think this new book is going to have that effect as well. I am absolutely <laughs> loving this. The Book of Two Ways is out and it is... Uh, Jody, I mean, I don't even know where to start. G- give us, give us the sell, give us the sell on this fantastic new book of yours. Sure. So it's the story of a woman named Don Edelstein who is literally on a plane that is crashing when the book opens, and like many people who suffer a near-death experience, her life flashes before her eyes. But instead of seeing her life in Boston as a death doula, where she lives with her husband, Brian, and her daughter. She instead imagines a life she gave up 15 years ago when she was a graduate student in Egyptology, and she was in love with another graduate student in Egyptology. When the plane lands, she's at a crossroads, and she has to decide whether to go back to Boston or if she should pursue the dreams that got away from her. And at that point, the book splits off into two different halves, um, a water route and a land route, one in which she goes back to Boston and one in which she goes to Cairo. And the reason I wrote it was because I really wanted to examine who we would be if we weren't who we are right now. What if your life had taken one tiny turn? Um, you know, where would you have been? Where would you wind up? And I really wanted to ask whether we actually make choices or if our choices make us. Yes, and and it is so, you have this uncanny knack, Jodie, I wonder if you've always had it, of this ability to to scratch an itch in, in the human condition, an itch that, that so many of us have, you know, yeah. I just turned 40 this year, and thank you for bringing on my midlife crisis, as I now think, <laughs> when I was 21, what doors closed, what sliding doors moments did I miss, and, mm. and the way you explore it, and the way you bring us these characters, it's just the most perfect, perfect novel, I'm enjoying it so much. I think it's really interesting too to be publishing this during a pandemic. Yes. Because to be to be, you know, perfectly frank, nobody wants to publish during a pandemic and no one wanted to be in this timeline at all. Um, but I think in a way it's the perfect companion piece to this moment because we are all imagining a timeline where this didn't happen. We are all suffering a loss of something. Maybe it is a vacation, maybe it's a wedding, maybe it is um, uh, hugging your your family, um, maybe it is the ultimate loss, a person who's died. Yeah. And I think we're all trying to envision a world where this didn't happen. And really that is at the heart of the book of two ways. This book is meant to get you thinking about the alternate paths that your life might have taken, not just the ones that you've walked down, but the ones that you didn't. Absolutely. And and one of the big themes in the book is death. And please don't let me mm-hmm. uh, let that put you off, dear listener, just because death is here. Don't suddenly run for the hills. It is done in the most comforting, fascinating, mm-hmm. compelling way. And it, talk to us about the, the, the death midwife, the death doulas. Is this actually? Sure. Best? 
Yes, it does. And I will say that, you know, it's, it's interesting that you frame it that way because um, the book has been out already in the United States and I have had scores of letters from people who've read it who said it has so helped them process the loss of somebody mm. in a very positive way. Um, you know, the thing about death is that uh, nobody wants to talk about it, but talking about dying doesn't kill you any more than talking about sex makes you pregnant. <laughs> and that is one of the things that I learned from a death doula, um, multiple people that I, I worked with, both hospice professionals and death doulas for this book. A death doula is a real thing, and it's the opposite of a birth doula, which we all know about. That's the person who helps a new life usher its way into the world. Uh, a death doula does the opposite. It helps you leave the world. And a death doula is kind of like one-stop shopping for hospice. Unlike a hospice team, which is multiple people, a social worker, a chaplain, a nurse, a doctor, a death doula is one person who will do anything except medical care. You will also have medical care involved if you hire a death doula. And they'll do anything from, for example, organizing your finances, making sure your social media presence is wiped away after you die, uh, selling a car, organizing your garage, helping you plan a funeral. Maybe you would like to have a green funeral or uh, be part of a living forest. Maybe you would like to donate your body to science. They'll take care of that for you. Um, helping you organize a legacy project that you leave behind for the people who you love after you're gone. Yes, um, yes. All this stuff, they do all of this. And if you want someone holding your hand at the minute you die, they will be there for that as well. So yes. I was really fortunate because uh, I got to do research with a hospice chaplain down in Texas for a week uh, where I did meet death doulas as well. And I literally was sitting at the bedsides of people who were dying, which you would think is incredibly depressing and actually is not. It's it's a real privilege to be with someone who doesn't have a lot of time left. And what you realize very quickly are two things. The first is that people who are dying are shocked to be dying. Even though they have a terminal diagnosis, nobody thinks that it's happening to them right then. Yeah. You know, everyone thinks they're going to have more time. And the other thing is that nobody wants to be remembered the way they are at the end when they're frail or sick. They want to be remembered for who they used to be. And many of those transactional moments where you're sitting at a bedside are about someone giving you their story so that you can carry it off with you. One of the things that the ancient Egyptians believed in, which I imagine we'll talk about too, mm -hmm. is that a person was made up of multiple multiple parts, including their soul, their um, sort of their familial line, uh, their, their actual body, um, and their shadow and their name. And I love that because as long as someone's name is still being spoken aloud, they are still with you, even if they've died. And the ancient Egyptians believed it. And certainly when you spend time at someone's deathbed, you realize how important that is. Every time that someone brings up the name or the thought of someone who's passed, they're back here in the world. Yes. And it is such a celebration of life. And it is that thing of, you know, you can't really talk about death because we don't know what happens and you can speculate, but that's quite a brief conversation. Whereas the whole point of when you're you're near the end like that is the mm -hmm. celebration and looking back and, and making the most of all these things and the random nature of life. And that is something else which you really celebrate in this book. It mm -hmm. is the odd twists and turns um that that life takes now is this something you as you're as you're preparing to write the next book do you do you take notes do you come up with plots do, does a death doula does it appear in, a, in an article you're reading one day and that's it that's your next novel how does it work for you how organic is it well it it sort of depends on the book and it sort of depends on the the moment in the book um for me 
this book actually began with my son, who was an Egyptology major himself at Yale. And he came home one day translating a, an ancient text called the Book of Two Ways. And without knowing anything about it, I walked by him and I went, oh, that's a great name for a novel. Just kept yes. going. <laughs> and, and then I started to think about the things we leave behind. And I used to, when I was on book tour, I used to ask the audience to close their eyes and to imagine the person they thought they'd wind up with. And then I would say, 95% of you are not imagining the person you're going home to tonight. And that's pretty remarkable, right? What are you that doing we to always... you're, you're splitting right. people up. Unbelievable. No, 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 no. Because it, I think it's really interesting that we hold on to that, even though our lives may take us exactly where we're supposed to be. The other thing about revisiting the past like that is that were you to change your timeline, you would not be the same person you are right now looking back. So you might not even still fit with that person. You know, there are so many variables. Um, but it's a fascinating exercise because everybody goes through it. And I sort of combined those two things together to create the story. Now, I realized that Dawn had been studying Egyptology. And when you study Egyptology, what you're really doing is looking at how the ancient Egyptians wanted to have a good death, because that's what their tombs were all about. And I realized that a person who spent her life training for that, who did not actually wind up becoming an Egyptologist, might still have that bleed out in whatever career she chose. And that led me to hospice. And it wasn't until I was doing the research that I learned about death doulas and said, that's what Don is. Okay, I see. I see how it happens. I see. So <laughs> so the Egyptology thing. So your son is, I mean, is he Wyatt? Is that what's going on here? Because there, there is a very dashing He absolutely British is not woman. Wyatt. Okay, no, no, no. Right, no. Right, okay. <laughs> no, and that's another fun thing. I didn't know Wyatt was British until I heard his voice in my head. He started talking to me and I went, oh, all right then, you're British. I love it when authors <laughs> say things like that. Yeah. I love it when authors say things like that. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, and he is. Uh, there's a slight end element of Indiana Jones, I guess, to the whole world of Absolutely. Egyptology. Absolutely, yes. We love it. Why do we? Why are we? Again, this comes back to what I was saying about you earlier, Andre. You scratch a human itch, mm. and Egyptology is this thing which we all learn about in school. In fact, weirdly, this week my eight-year-old is learning about Egypt while I'm reading this there book. You go. He's at school doing this. We love it because why do we love it? The distance between us and them, or what is it about them that we find so compelling. I think we're fascinated by them because it was such a rich culture and because we still have proof of their culture, which we can, if we're lucky enough, go see in person or at least find out about online or in books. Um, the interesting thing that about Egyptology for me is that, you know, so many people go through a stage when, like you said, they're eight to 10, you know, yeah. and they're learning about the pyramids and the mummies, and then it goes away. Mm. And we don't learn any more about it. And that actually was very challenging for me as a writer. Because Wyatt and Dawn, when they're talking about Egyptology, they are very intelligent people. They are academics. And so to have them have a conversation about pyramids would have been really stupid and specious. Yes. And I needed to create um, conversations that you could understand with your level of eight-year-old Egyptology, but yeah. that expanded on what you knew. So, for example, we all know that the Egyptians mummified bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Do you know why? Probably not. Nope. So here's, here's why. Um, when you were an ancient Egyptian, the entire goal of having a good death was that your soul, your ba soul, would be able to fly out of your body, 
and party all day with Ray, the sun god. Ray gets up in the morning, he gets on his solar bark, which is a boat, and he pulls the sun across the sky until the end of the day. At the end of the day, Ray then reunites with his corpse, which is actually the mummified body of Ray or Osiris, who is the god of the netherworld. And um, he's kind of like, like a different god from Ray, but also the same, it's a father, son, holy ghost kind of thing. And the reason that Ray comes back to, to Osiris at night and reabsorbs with Osiris is because that body powers him up. Being in the tomb is like a battery and he gets all the juice he needs to get up the next morning and pull the sun across the sky. Now, since ancient Egyptians were trying to mimic this cycle in their own death, when they died, they knew their soul would get up every morning and would go party with Ray all day. But at the end of the day, their soul needed to come back somewhere and power up cyclically like a battery so that they could do it all over again the next day. So they needed that soul to come to their body forever and ever and ever, which meant the body had to last forever and ever and ever. And that is why Egyptians mummified their bodies. And it had to last somewhere like the pyramids. Is that what they are? Just so it's visible so the, the soul can make it back and always find its way back? Uh, no, it's actually really interesting. Different tombs are different. But for example, um, in the tombs of Middle Egypt, which I visited when I was doing the research, there are false doors that look like um, just like little hobbit holes almost that are painted full of hieroglyphs and images. And the soul would know to go through that and make its way down the burial shaft to you know, the um, the burial chamber where the coffin was and where the body was laying. I mean, I don't know. I, I assume there was some kind of blueprint map for the soul. They didn't seem to have problems with it. <laughs> they always did it. They always made it back. Um, there's so many things going on in this book. And, it, you know, you there's there's so tremendous amounts of, of knowledge and information. And look, you know, we're reading this fantastic book with this wonderful plot. And then there's some heavyweight theology being slid into our brains. And I love it. And this is why we love reading novels, because we're learning about uh, stuff that happened, but learning about people as well. There's so many different things going on so many moving parts one thing i wanted to pick up on which i found really interesting was uh, dawn's mother who is this irish hmm. uh, very very superstitious woman because there's, there's a lot of fear in this book we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're scared of death we're, we're scared of things going wrong we're scared of disasters which the book opens with of course mm -hmm. um, and so she has superstitions how, how do we how, how, mm -hmm. how do you explore these defense mechanisms against fear and superstition is an interesting one for me <laughs> um, for me, I started with friends of mine who were Irish who had a few superstitions, and then I just did a deep dive on the internet to try to figure out what more they might have, you know, they might be thinking. Um, I do love the idea of playing with fate and destiny because they are different. And, you know, um, fate is sort of what uh, is the buffet that's laid out for you and destiny is what you choose from it. So there's this, this element of free choice, even in fate, that I find fascinating. And that becomes a big part of this story. Um, the other part that we haven't even touched on is that Don's husband in Boston is a quantum physicist who studies multiverses and, um, and the idea that there are multiple timelines for all of us that split every time we make a decision. And that idea, that sense that there is a dichotomy between fate and destiny when most people think they're the same. Um, I find that really fascinating. And I think superstition is part of that. Superstition, if you're going to go with that metaphor, is what makes you finally have the courage, I think, to get up and look at the buffet in the first case. Um, yes, yes. And, you know, for me, I, I, I think everyone's got them. 
you know, um, for, to some extent, when I was a younger writer, I was writing a lot about all the scary things that can happen to your children. And I know there was a superstitious part of me thinking, well, if I cover it in fiction, my kids are going to be fine. Yes, yes. If I imagine you know? the worst, if I, it's it's like me when I go on a plane. If I if I grip on enough to the to the um, armrests <laughs> and imagine myself plummeting to the ground, it can't possibly happen. It's true. It's the comfort blanket, and maybe that's well, maybe that's what we as your readers do. We use your fiction to you know maybe. give us that comfort as well. I don't know. I think so. Um, it also will probably devastate you to know that I wrote the plane crash scenes while I was on a plane. <laughs> no, I can't have that. No, 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 no. Are you joking? Did you not? No, you not... I'm not joking. Oh, it was very meta. God. It's terrifying. That's I, I'm so scared of flying, Jodie. That's a nightmare. Um, it's 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 such a great read, and you're right. We haven't even touched upon. The, you know, you have managed to explain to me the multiverse theory with the electrons spinning both both clockwise and anticlockwise at the same time. I'd never understood this before in my life, and now I understand. I know. It. Thank you. That, just, well, it's, it's funny. I had someone on Twitter yesterday who was a physicist who said for the first time, like she completely understood how it worked and i was like where is my honorary phd i'm ready right. i'm, I'm yes. here yeah yes 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 it's a, this is what it is it's like elements of of, of uh, theology there's mm -hmm. a, some physics textbook in here as well and there's just a fantastic story and the book of two ways is a, is a wonderful read jd um can i ask what are you up to next what's the next novel going to be about do you know yet yes in fact um you know because of this pandemic i wasn't supposed to start my new book until after this book tour and uh, I was co I am co-writing it with an author named Jenny Boylan. Okay. And in March, she contacted me and said, you know, my schedule has just miraculously cleared, as has <laughs> everyone else's. Yeah. And uh, we sat down via Zoom and we, we hashed out a plot and uh, wound up writing a first draft of what will be our 2022 novel. And all I will say is that it is um, it is about what it means to be a woman. And I won't give anything else away, uh, but it is... A, it's it's really good. I'm actually today going to be editing some more of it. So I'm very excited to share that. But let's hope we're doing it in a pandemic free world. Yes, please. That would be amazing. A woman mm -hmm. in a pandemic free world. That'd be very nice. To do. So that's, <laughs> that's coming out in 2022. How do you find uh, working with other people? Well, this has been really interesting. I co-wrote um, two books with my daughter, which actually were her initial idea. And we did it sitting side by side in my office. Uh, speaking the entire book out loud, taking turns typing. And I think it was very simple and organic because I was really kind of implicitly teaching her how to write a book. So without even realizing it, I was showing her how to um, how I create. And she just kind of fell into it. I also currently work on librettos for musical theater. And I have a co-writer who I've described as half my brain. So working with him is also very easy. <laughs> but working <laughs> okay, with good. Jenny was really a learning curve because she creates in a very different way than I do. And it forced me to identify my writing process in ways that I've never done in over 25 years. Okay. Jenny's the kind of person who throws it all on the page and then takes 10 drafts to get to a what she would consider a first draft, basically. Mm. And I, um, I think I do a lot of writing in my head before I put anything on paper. So by the time I get something to paper, it's already in pretty good shape, but I don't think I really realized that before. And so it was really a, um, it was work to learn how the two of us could make it to a middle ground so that the book would not feel like two pigs fighting under a blanket, but would actually, you know, be uh, organic and, uh, and match.
Yes, although I would like to read a book written by two pigs fighting. Two pigs fighting. That would be good. That would would work for me. Angry angry ham. That would be great. Um, It could be about Donald Trump. Who knows? Um, Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, I would also like to ask you this question, Jodie. Yes. How has the landscape, uh, in terms of being a woman writer, how has that changed for you? Because there is a perception, and I hope I'm not uh, flying too close to the wind here, There's there's a perception of your books as being somehow airport fiction or lighter, and this drives me mad because they're not. They're wonderful, wonderful books. And I know you were involved in this thing where your book was submitted mm-hmm. under a man's name and it got a completely yeah. different reaction. How, yeah. how do you feel about that now, today, in 2020? Um, I don't think anything's changed. I literally turned down an interview in the UK a week ago that wanted me to come on and discuss the terms that are used for sex and how oh. modern audiences don't know words like bonk anymore and wally. And I was like, what do you think I write? You know, I don't, I I actually think in some ways it's worse in the UK. I don't know why I have an image of writing, you know, um, chiclet, because if I do, I write the worst chiclet imaginable. Chiclet's a great genre. If you want a light, fluffy read, I read it sometimes, you know, and I enjoy it, but it's not what I write. I write very heavy information driven, moral quandary books. And when people call me a women's fiction writer, they are not referring to who reads my books. They are referring to what is between my legs. And that is straight up misogyny. Mm-hmm. We don't call anyone a men's fiction writer. We expect men to be read by both women and men, but somehow only women are supposed to read women. I was so tired of being called a women's fiction writer that I actually tracked my fan mail for three months and 51% of it comes from men. So I'm not quite sure who thinks I'm a women's fiction writer, but it's not me and it's not my readers. Good. I'm, I'm, it's, it's sort of, you're, you're right, the, the, the UK perception is, is maddening and a lot of it is to do with presentation. A lot of it is to do with, mm. with the way certain books are, are put. It comes down to basic things like colours, you know what I mean? And, and images on the, on, the, on the cover where you're like, this, why? just because it's written by a woman, you put a flower on it, please. But it's also, earth? it's a terrible assumption. You know, yes. again, when you when you sit there and think, why do we expect women to go out and buy books written by men, but we don't expect men to go out and buy books written by women? That's that's a huge, huge double standard. Yes. And um, it's actually yeah. one that I, I encourage people to challenge. Go look at your bookshelf and make sure that you're reading both men and women. Make sure you're reading both um, white authors and authors of color. Because, you know, if you're not, you're missing a great series of perspectives that are not your own. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, you know, it, it's, in a way, it's good to hear you say, I was, part of me thought you might say, it's better now and all this sort of thing, but it's good to no, hear. No, it's that, not, yeah. it's terrible. It's important that, <laughs> it's important that we, all, we all recognize this is an active, ongoing problem and we mm-hmm. all need to do our bit to overcome it. It's really important. Right. Um, Jodie, The Book of Two Ways, it's a great novel. It's an elegant plot. It's got huge topics and it's such a pleasure to read. And I feel... I don't know, strangely sort of educated and emotionally comforted <laughs> as well. What a combination, uh, what a novel, Jodie Pickle. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me today. Jodie Pickle there, what an author, what a book. I'm always amazed, and both of my guests on the show today have written so many books, real quantity, and yet the quality, it just gets better and better. Honestly, The Book of Two Ways is out now, and I cannot recommend it enough. 
Now, I'm sure that you've been diving back into your favourite novels over the past few months. I am actually reading War and Peace at the moment, after I spoke to Victoria Hislop a couple of episodes ago, uh, and I got the translation she recommended, and it's really good. I'm about a third of the way through, and I've stopped, I've, I've jumped off to read um, the new Jodie Pickle and the new Ian Rankin, but I'm going to be diving back into War and Peace very soon. It sounds like a massive undertaking. It's not. It's a joy to read. Now, anyway, have you wondered ever what inspires the authors behind your favourites? Well, we found out. We asked the brilliant Harriet Tice what kind of music she listens to when she's writing. Well, it was a slightly odd mix. Japanese jazz, ambient trance and a lot of opera in Italian. And I'm a sucker for channels on streaming that play something called lo-fi beats when I'm working. I can't concentrate if there's any lyrics because it distracts me far too much. Well, I used to be a criminal barrister and I had to leave when I had children as I found it so difficult to balance the two. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at how someone might negotiate going back to work as a barrister after time away to have kids. And also, both of my kids have now left primary school, but I found some of the schoolgate politics really quite horrific. So I had a lot of fun putting her into some very awkward situations. Um, I do most of my work sitting in bed, at least the writing of the initial draft. It's absolutely appalling for my back, but it's really good for peace and quiet, and I find it a good space in which to concentrate. I was over a year late with my deadline for delivery of book two, so my inspiration was the thought of my poor agent and editor who were waiting so patiently to receive the manuscript um, in their inbox. So yes, that, that I'd say really was my main inspiration and incentive to keep going. Um, I've been really lazy. I've written about um, I've written about a character and situations from some of my own experience, a criminal barrister, and that was my work. So in fact, I haven't ever really had to do a great deal of research, um, which has taken me anywhere other than to some very, very dark places on the internet. Um, as I think every crime writer would say that our search histories are best avoided. Um, yeah, not, not, not really a good, good thought to dwell on, I would say. Um, I went away for two weeks, a whole two weeks, when I was writing the first draft of The Lies You Told, um, which left an awful lot for my poor husband to deal with, with the kids and the dog and the cat. Um, it was great to have that period of time to concentrate, but it's not something I'd be able to do or want to do very often. Um, and the other quite cheeky thing was that I asked some medical information I needed to know. I asked a friend of mine who's an anaesthetist and she was working at the front line of the um, COVID pandemic during, uh, during the peak. And um, I messaged her and asked if she could give me some information. And she actually gave up some of her very valuable time off to help me. And then she said it was fun. It was more fun looking into my rather nasty little question than thinking about reality. So, but thanks, thanks, Rosie. Much appreciated. I wasn't drinking when I was writing The Lies You Told. I stopped for over a year. Um, so in fact, no alcoholic drinks at all. Um, I said I wouldn't drink until I'd finished the second book. Um, I have now finished the second book. So I will say I'm back on the gin now and it's definitely helping me relax. Yeah, I bet it is, Harriet. It does have that effect. Uh, right, that's all we've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. My name's Tom Price. Uh, do join us next time for more of your favourite authors and stories. And in the meantime, happy reading. Thank you.